0: Hello everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here again. We couldn't quite get to the end of the Ming Dynasty last time, but we did make it to the demise, and that's pretty much what it's all going to be about today. We left off in 1567 with the death of the Jiajing Emperor, who reigned a spectacular 45 years on the throne, but wasn't very attentive to his job, or at least not as attentive as he should have been. He left matters of state to others, and there were some stinkers in there. If these ministers only gave as much attention to running a good, clean government as they did to lining their pockets, the Ming dynasty might have had a chance to hold off the Manchus and hang in there a little longer. But the Qing Emperor died and the throne was passed to his son, who we know as the Longqing Emperor. He's also known by his temple name, Ming Muzong. In fact, of all these Ming emperors, every one, they all have temple names by which they are also known. Most of the source materials I use refer to the Ming emperors all by their era or regnal names, but some use temple names, like the Hongwu emperor was also known as Yong Yongle was also Chengzhu, Xuande was also Xuanzong, Jiajing was also known as Shizong. Muzong, by all accounts, was not a bad emperor. He was not his father's favorite and was never meant to be the heir. In fact we could call this poor chap his father's least favorite. He was a prince and all, but he didn't actually enjoy the entire benefits package of actually being a prince. He became emperor at the age of 30, because when his father, the Jiajing Emperor, finally went in 1567, he was the oldest surviving son, so he got the job. He grew up in circumstances that were Hardly befitting a member of the royal family, let alone third in line to the emperorship. He hardly ever saw his father, and from what the history books say, by the time he finally got to the throne, he couldn't undo fast enough everything his father did and pass through all these laws that his father resisted. As if to show his contempt for his father, who had denied him for three decades. He was going to leave his imprimatur on this period, and whatever he can do to diminish his father, he would consider it. The only problem is that Mu Zong or Long Ching only got to enjoy being emperor for five and a half years. And with all the pleasures denied him as a prince, guess what this guy devoted himself to all day and all night. And when all was said and done and all the Ming histories were written, they said he wasn't a bad emperor and tried to initiate a whole slew of positive reforms to revive the country, but quickly lost interest and ended up devoting his remaining years to carnal pleasures and leisure. He came into the job and started squeezing out all the Daoists who had infiltrated the government and became so influential and parasitic. They all got pushed out, and all manners of fiscal reforms were enacted. If you recall his father was an ardent Daoist, and it's suspected he died from some poisonous Taoist potion that was going to give him immortality. Well, he is immortal in a way. He's been dead for more than four and a half centuries, and we're still talking about him. Like King George VI of the King's Speech fame, the Long Qing Emperor also had quite the stammer, but lacked the Lionel Logue that Britain's former king enjoyed. Because of this severe stutter that afflicted the Long Qing Emperor, he was known to sit through meetings without uttering a single word. And also because of his stammer, all matters, and even important rituals where the emperor had a speaking part, were delegated to a sort of designated speaker. Throughout China history, you always had, from time to time, some talented, honest, and upright officials who actually became heroes because of the tireless devotion to their job and their incorruptible ways. We mentioned Hai Rui last episode. Thankfully for the Ming Dynasty and their waning years, along came Zhang Jujeng. And at last, someone powerful and talented enough was at the center to steer the ship of state through some very rough waters, including two mediocre emperors. He was the Grand Secretary when the Longqing Emperor took the throne, and he had been somewhat of a confidant and tutor of the prince during the Jiaqing Emperor's last years. Zhang Jujeng, had all the knowledge of the Confucian gentleman scholar, but was not a philosopher. He felt unless this knowledge is put to good use to benefit the people in the country, what good was it? He served the emperor well and continued his work as the chief grand secretary or chancellor after the Longqing emperor died and his son, all of nine years old, was placed on the throne. Now this nine-year-old son... He is the Ming Dynasty, all-time champion, longest reigning emperor. He reigned from 1572 to 1620. Now, 1620 is dangerously close to the fateful year of 1644, which is when the Ming Dynasty went down in flames. So by the time this Wanli emperor passes from the scene in 1620, you only have 24 more years left, so you know nothing good happened for the Ming under this guy. He reigned for 48 years and a month. He started off good, but as we will see in the latter part of his reign, he completely removed himself from the day-to-day affairs of government at a time when a strong leader was critical for the survival of the dynasty. In the beginning, he showed so much promise. Having someone like Zhang Jujang as his tutor and mentor, coupled with all the positive personality traits of this emperor, He could have been another Alexander the Great, perhaps. Anyways, as we'll see, despite all the promise there was for this emperor, he hardly rose to the levels that were anticipated. I know these behind-the-scenes guys like Zhang Chujang, they don't get a lot of the glory that they deserve. The history books all tend to focus on the emperors or the evil villains more than the good, talented, and practical chancellors who provided the actual leadership but in the emperor's name, of course. Zhang Jujang was one of the greats, and as long as he lived, the fortunes of the Ming dynasty weren't too bad. The young Wanli emperor had the good sense to leave matters in his hands, and the country was a lot better for it. Now, despite being an able administrator, there, of course, were plenty of factions within the imperial court who were lined up against the chancellor. The political backbiting and infighting was pretty bad, and Zhang Jujang didn't carry out his duties unopposed. Zhang's enemies at the court were able to slowly turn the emperor against his lifelong mentor and tutor. He was always at odds with the conservative factions at the court, and especially with the neo-Confucianists who studied Zhu Xi and Wang Yangming. Zhang Jujang was impatient with these guys and their obfuscating ways and how they were so busy focusing on the tree and that they lost sight of the forest. Zhang Jung famously once said, and I'm quoting the translation, I wish that today's scholars would plant their feet firmly on the real ground to pursue real achievement, take respect for the intrinsic nature of things as the basis of action, take compliance with established regulations as their norm, and take sincere obedience to the superior as loyalty. End quote. Yeah, if only. He can't live forever, and this great chancellor passed in 1582, ten years into the reign of the Wanli Emperor. He got this emperor through his minority, so when he passed, the emperor was 19 years old and of an age where he should have been able to take things over. The only problem was he didn't. All those years of training from his mentor, Zhang Jung, didn't really do much, and as soon as he was gone, the fortunes of the Ming dynasty began to slide. It happened in the Ming, and it will happen later on in the Qing, when another long reigning emperor front-loaded all his achievements of shepherding the country through prosperous times in the first half of his reign. Then for the last decades, not so great, and with a few historic missed opportunities. The opposing faction at the Ming court was able to convince the emperor to posthumously disgrace Zhang Zhuzheng. So after all this guy had done for the emperor, not to mention for the Ming Empire, he was disgraced posthumously, and all his wealth was confiscated, and of course hardships were placed on his surviving family. He was rehabilitated later on, but immediately after his death, his fate wasn't very good. Wan Li, though mostly famous for being an absentee emperor during the last two decades of his rule, was quite enthusiastic when he took complete control in 1582. He had had some excellent training up to that point and felt he was as capable as anyone to take over the day-to-day affairs of the country. He took personal control for the next eight years. During this time, three wars were fought with the Mongols, the Japanese, and the third was a domestic rebellion that was put down. And The forces of the Ming Emperor prevailed three times out of three. However, as I mentioned. This emperor, who showed so much promise that maybe he could be another Han Wu Di or a Tang Taizong or even a Yongle as far as being a rock of stability to China, failed to live up to these expectations. But somewhere around the turn of the century, when 1599 turned into 1600, This Wanli emperor just turned his back on the government and disappeared to the inner sanctums of the Forbidden City to spend the next 20 years in utter gluttony and debauchery. He became obese, and he had a huge falling out with the court bureaucracy over a succession issue, and he refused to see his ministers. He had so much disrespect and disdain for these officials, and had become so disillusioned about all the things they did, their backbiting, and self-serving ways. So in 1600, he's 37 years old, and you could say he spent the next 20 years ducking and hiding from everyone and under this set of circumstances, well, you'd be surprised how quickly things begin to break down once it became impossible to get the emperor to sign off on anything. That was it. The Wanli emperor just up and took a powder and told everyone to go run the government without him and to leave him alone. And I'm not going to say this was the direct cause of the Ming's fall, but it sure was one of the causes. Other than satisfying all his personal pleasures, the Wanli Emperor also started sponging off the imperial treasury and acquiring vast amounts of wealth. He used his position as the emperor to get in on the action for all kinds of public works, and he raised taxes at will, and one of his main scams was to send his eunuchs out to the provinces to oversee mining operations. Now, in reality, no mines were operated. Mining consisted of shaking down the local businessmen, farmers, artisans, or whoever had wealth of any shape or kind. The Wanli emperor was obsessive about this and focused all his energy, or whatever energy, remained from his other passionate pursuits. So this mining business amounted to legalized extortion, and because the one perpetrating the extortion was the chief executive of the country, there was nothing anyone could do about it except pay up. Another one of the Wanli emperor's passions in life was preparing for his afterlife. No expense was to be spared in the construction of his tomb. The site, located on the premises of the 13 Ming tombs, although there were not 13 yet, was personally selected by the emperor, and he made regular visits to check on the construction. From 1584 to 1601, workers and artisans toiled to complete this massive tomb. Estimates ranged from 80 million to 800 million tails of silver to build this monstrosity. On the low end, 80 million tails of silver, at today's I silver shares price, could be more than two billion dollars. However, this does not take into consideration equivalent purchasing power. But either way, you could have bought a whole bunch of homes in Beverly Park and live in the same hood as Denzel, Eddie Murphy, Sly, Jack, and Taylor Swift. The Ming Emperor Wan Li, Ming Shanjong. The Ming Emperor Wan Li, AKA Ming Shanzong. He died in 1620 after falling ill in the spring. He gave somewhat of a deathbed confession, and admitted he had failed to live up to what had been expected from his ancestors. He admitted his avarice and his utter neglect of his duties. He repealed all his most unpopular taxes, and officials were rehabilitated, who feared poorly during his reign. And then he died on August 18, 1620, the year the Mayflower landed on the tip of Cape Cod, and U.S. history was off and running. Now, it was during the time of the Wanli Emperor that the Jesuits began doing their mission work in China. This is a podcast topic in and of itself, and I dutifully covered it in CHP episode 98, covering the lives of the all-time Jesuit greats Ricci, Shaul von Bell, and Verbiest. But just in case you missed that one, let me just quickly mention them. The work of the Jesuits, or Society of Jesus in China was a lot more than good old-fashioned proselytizing. They served as a brilliant conduit for transmitting knowledge, information, and scholarly works both east to west and west to east. Their first mission in 1552 with St. Francis Xavier at the helm was aborted after his untimely death just as he reached China. But in 1582, Remember, this is the period when the Wanli Emperor was still actively engaged in the running of the government. This was right when Zhang Jujang had just died. This mission that landed in Macau in 1582 was led by Matteo Ricci. Ricci arrived in Macau, where the great Michel Ruggieri had been living for a couple of years. Michel Ruggieri is considered the first official Western sinologist, He was one of the first scholars in the West to study the Chinese language and was credited with the first Portuguese-Chinese dictionary. Ruggieri and Ricci made immense contributions to the scholarly study of China, its history, culture, language, economy, government, everything. They started from nothing. No one in Europe knew the first thing about China except that it was there. We in our day know more about the farthest planets in our solar system than people in the West knew about China. These two Jesuit members were able to secure permission from the Ming Emperor to establish a permanent mission, which was located in the southern city of Zhao They began their work in 1583 and stayed there till 1589, the year they got thrown out. But relations got patched up and recovered to the extent that Matteo Ricci finally got to lead a mission to Beijing in 1598. He made it to the capital, but he didn't have any success meeting the Wanli Emperor. But finally, in 1601, Matteo Ricci received a formal invitation from the Wanli Emperor's people to come up to Beijing and become a formal advisor to the Emperor. Now, as we'll see, by this time, Matteo Ricci had developed quite a reputation amongst the Confucian literati for his incredible wisdom and for a lot of the Western knowledge of science and technology that he freely gave them. Now, not all Confucians were alike, and some were hardcore conservative and rejected anything Western on principle, but for many of the literati, he was very respected. Ricci was also the first Westerner to come in contact with and discover the Jews of Kaifeng, who had been around since the Song Dynasty. That topic was covered in episode CHP 112. Anyways, we'll come back and look at Ricci and the whole experience of the Portuguese in China. They were the real pioneers from Europe. The Wanli Emperor was followed by his son, the Taichung Emperor. Now, this guy was really the William Henry Harrison of the Ming Dynasty, reigning only for 29 days. Even the ninth president of the U.S. beat him out by a few days How did this emperor die so quickly? Well, of course, there was a story behind this. The Hongwan An, the case of the red pills. The emperor died mysteriously one morning after ingesting these little red pills. He had taken ill after enjoying the fine gift of the Lady Zheng, consort to his father. As the tale goes, Lady Zheng had presented the emperor eight breathtaking girls all at once. The Taichung Emperor took advantage of the situation to the fullest extent and pleasured himself to such a degree that he fell ill. So these pills, instead of curing him, ended up probably killing him. This sudden jolting dynasty did not help matters because, thanks to the Wanli Emperor, 20 years of decay had already firmly set in, and the Ming was on its way down and to exacerbate matters and add to the instability, we well, you have a situation of an emperor who doesn't even last a month on the throne. And into this perilous time for the Ming dynasty steps the Taichung emperor's son, who took the era name Tianqi. As for the newly deceased emperor, he didn't live long enough to construct his own tomb, so they ended up inserting him inside the tomb that was originally meant for the Tai emperor, who had been banished after death to a less desirable location other than the official Ming dynasty tombs just north of Beijing. The Wanli emperor, by the way, is buried in the third largest of all the 13 Ming tombs, his tomb is called Dingling, It's the only one of the 13 Ming tombs to be excavated. It was discovered intact. The excavation of the tomb in 1956 was botched so badly that they never attempted to try and open up another one of the Ming tombs. When the level of technology reaches a point where Chinese archaeologists and scientists can safely excavate tombs that have been sealed for 2,000 years, they will commence work on others. The trauma of what befell Ding Ling and many of the priceless artifacts that came out of there is a topic that's not popular to discuss in China. In fact, during the Cultural Revolution, the remains of the Wanli Emperor, which was essentially his skeleton, was hauled out and denounced at one of these infamous Red Guard struggle sessions. Anyway, the Ding Ling Museum has been fixed up, and eh, it's worth seeing if you're in uh, Beijing... So the Tianqi Emperor, he was another bad one, and as the story goes, he was described, among other deficiencies, as being illiterate. During the entirety of his seven-year reign, he hardly paid attention to affairs of state and left the government in the hands of two devious souls from Chinese history, a eunuch, Wei Zhongxian, and the Tianqi Emperor's former nanny, known as Madame Ku. There were a lot of infamous eunuchs in Chinese history, but Wei Zhongxian usually tops any list as far as the worst of the worst goes. He was only powerful as long as the Tianqi Emperor was alive, but during those seven years, he had absolute control and did some very nasty things. Again, I invite you to go check out that CHP series on the history of the eunuchs for more dirt on Wei Zhongxian. He owed his position to Madame Ke, Ke Sure, She, as I said, was the emperor's nanny, and no dummy to boot. She was very influential and brought Wei Zhongxian into the inner circle, and of course, the rest is history. There was a whole miniseries in China several years ago that chronicled this specific period, and these characters, that I'm told, was very popular. But this emperor didn't last long, and by 1627, he was gone, and Wei Zhongxian and Madame Ke were also swept away and killed shortly thereafter. So after the Tianqi Emperor and all the damage done by Wei Zhongxian and Madame Ke's corruption, that's going to be it for the Ming Dynasty. Enough damage had been done whereby there was no ameliorating the situation. Now we come to the final emperor of the Ming dynasty, the Chongzhen Emperor, who's also known by his temple name Ming Sizong. He was the brother of the Tianqi Emperor. The dynasty by 1627 was beyond repair. There was no way it was ever going to recover. The first thing he did was get rid of the evil duo of Wei Zhongxian and Madam Ke. The Chongzhen Emperor signed off on their arrest and execution as soon as he felt able to. This emperor tried, but thanks to the good old Wanli emperor, the state of the Ming was so poor at this time. The treasury was empty, and there was no revenue sufficient to maintain a fighting army and a halfway decent civil bureaucracy. So try as he might, the treasury was empty, and they didn't have any fancy banking back in the 17th century that allowed the governments to create wealth out of nothing. So try as he might, the Chongzhen emperor couldn't get any traction for any of his ideas to revive the dwindling fortunes of the Ming. It wasn't that the Ming institutions were poor or weak. We'll see when the Ming falls and the Qing take over, they more or less continue on with the same ways of running things that they inherited from the Ming. The problem resided mainly in the emperor. He was well-meaning, but not suited to be a leader. The 1620s was really when you could begin to sniff the end of heaven's mandate for the Ming. First off, you had the trauma surrounding the sudden and suspicious passing of the Taichung Emperor, not to mention the last 20 years of the Wanli era that put the Ming on an irreversible one-way course to extinction. The Chongzhen Emperor was terribly suspicious of everyone, even his most loyal and capable officials and generals. He turned on everyone, most notoriously with the general Yuan Chonghuan. Yuan Chonghuan was the last great hope for the Ming and had scored great victories against the Manchus in the north, preventing their incursion into China proper. Anyways, the emperor succumbed to palace intrigue and had this great commander killed by the death of a thousand cuts and some trumped-up charges. The 1620s was a decade where North China was suffering from one of its patented horrific droughts, which led to widespread famine and unrest. The peasant revolts started in the heartland, up north, in Shanxi and Shanxi. These became pretty serious in no time at all. The emperor was sort of powerless to do anything because there was no longer sufficient funding to maintain an effective army or offer any famine relief. The way the tax system was skewed, the elites of society escaped all the inconveniences and hardships that taxes imposed on people. The elites of the Ming society, like the late Leona Helmsley, felt that only the little people paid taxes. And that's how it was in China at this time. There was never enough revenue raised to cover the whole Ming dynasty nut. So in times like this, as we've seen throughout Chinese history, going all the way back to the Bronze Age, the emperor had to rely on mercenaries and other private soldiers. And as it always happens in every culture and every part of the world, These soldiers slowly coalesced around leaders who had the charisma and talent to attract these soldiers, bandits, disaffected, and just the plain hungry. And you know, once this starts happening, it's going to be curtains for the Ming. The one who we'll focus on is Li Zicheng. Li was one of hundreds of thousands who tried to escape the wretchedness imposed on them due to both the drought and the failure of the government to provide for these stricken areas. He was born in the great revolutionary town of Yan'an in northern Shanxi. That's the place where Mao and the communists ended up at the conclusion of the Long March of 1934-35. For most of the 1630s, Li Zicheng's fortunes rose and more and more people rallied to his side. By 1641, Li had set himself up in Hunan province and began carrying out political work there, calling for all kinds of tax relief for the peasants. The ancient city of Kaifeng, however, remained loyal to the Ming emperor and refused to accept Li Zicheng as their leader. So he had the dikes of the Yellow River smashed, and of a population back then of 378,000 inhabitants, supposedly over 300,000 of them were killed in this flood. And this is all covered in that three-part series that looked at the history of Henan. Li Zicheng moved his base from Hunan to Shanxi, and it was there, in 1644, that he declared the establishment of the Shun Dynasty, and he the first emperor. Once he took care of this, he led his forces east to Beijing. And wherever he went, he was victorious, By now, the Chongzhen Emperor knew it was only a matter of time before the Forbidden City was captured. By April 18, 1644, Li Zicheng's forces were already defiling the tombs of the Ming ancestors. They were only days away from the capital. The Chongzhen Emperor was able to hear the fighting, and from the friendly confines of the Forbidden City, he was able to see the smoke rising off in the distance. The Chongzhen Emperor thereupon wrote a final note, and I will quote what he said. Quote, Seventeen years ago I ascended the throne, and now I meet with heaven's punishment above, sinking ignominiously below while the rebels seize my capital because my ministers have deceived me. I die unable to face my ancestors in the underworld, dejected and ashamed. May the bandits dismember my corpse and slaughter my officials, but let them not despoil the imperial tombs, nor harm a single of our people. End quote. Then the Chongzhen Emperor gathered his immediate family together and told them of their terrible plight and the horrible fate that awaited them upon capture by the rebel forces of Li Zicheng. He had everyone commit suicide, and those who would not perform this act and tried to escape, he had them all killed, save one, his daughter, the Princess Changping. He cut off her arm, but she was able to escape and survived and became a popular character in the Chinese folklore this time. The Chongzhen Emperor thereupon walked up Coal Hill in Jingshan Park behind the Forbidden City with his loyal eunuch at his side, and from the Zuihuai, or Guilty Scholar Tree, the last Ming Emperor hung himself. And this historic tree survived all the way up to the Cultural Revolution when it was dug up and destroyed. However, there was a replica in its place today. And then Li Zicheng marched into the Forbidden City, first emperor of the Shun Dynasty, and began his imperial reign. Li Zicheng wanted to be emperor so badly. In the first week that he occupied the imperial palace inside the Forbidden City, his troops, murdered, raped, and stole from the inhabitants of the capital. I read a long account of the taking of the capital by Li Chung, and whatever hope he had of holding on to this prize, he surely knew he had lost it after he saw what his rebel soldiers had done. He and his Shun dynasty doesn't last more than a couple of months before they too met a bad end. And now the elephant in the room, all this time while I've been finishing off the Ming, I haven't mentioned them yet, and we'll bring them in here right now. The Manchus, all this time since about 1627, when the Wanli Emperor died, had been probing the north to test the softness of the Ming Dynasty. They had been making incursions into Chinese territory, and this naturally caused great alarm in the capital. Their lands, of course, were located within the northeast provinces of Jilin, Liaoning, and Heilongjiang. This was Manchu territory, Manchuria. To the Chinese, the Great Wall was a symbolic barrier separating the civilized world of China from the uncivilized hordes of the Xiongnu, Khitans, Jurchens, Turks, and Mongols. To the Jurchens of the 17th century, the Great Wall was a symbol that beckoned them and tempted them with all the riches of a splendid civilization that lay south of the Great Wall. But also, right along the borders, or no man's land that separated the Manchu lands from the lands of the Middle Kingdom, you also had a kind of peaceful coexistence where Han and Manchu lived side by side, intermarried, and carried out trade, commerce, and and whatnot. The Manchu realm was divided into two territories. First, to the north and northwest, was the area called Rukhah, and is more commonly known in the history books as Ruhol, spelled J-E-H-O-L. The way Giles J is the Pinion R. Now, the second region controlled by the Manchus was Manchuria itself, up in the northeast. These guys were tough. They weren't steppe peoples like the Mongols and others. In Manchuria, this was forest land, and the Manchus were very tribal and organized. Like the Mongols to the west, they were a constant threat to the Chinese. To defend against this very serious and sustained threat, the Ming had fortified the Great Wall and effectively garrisoned troops up in the north. But as money ran out and the treasury ran dry, these troops were pulled back, and by that time, the only thing separating the Manchus from the rich pickings down in the south was the undefended Great Wall things got more serious and the emperor had to rely on these military leaders who amounted to nothing more than warlords to defend against the Manchus. Li Chengliang and Mao Wenlong were the two most notable ones. So these generals were loyal to the Ming only in as much as they got what they wanted as far as fees and royal honors and privileges. Between military battles and divide and conquer diplomacy playing one powerful manchu leader off against another the pot hadn't yet boiled over the manchus were still held beyond the great wall but in 1583 after a bloody intra-tribal struggle there emerged a 24-year-old manchu named Nurhaci in mandarin he's known as Nuorhat Church his father had recently been killed in the struggle for supremacy. By 1586, he had avenged the death of his father and was fast rising to the top of the pyramid that made up the myriad of clans among the Manchus. By 1593, he was pretty much acknowledged by them being as the top guy amongst the Manchus. By 1601, Norhachi's confederation of clans had gotten so big that he had to organize everyone, So he divided all his soldiers into companies of 300 men that were all organized under four banners, or chi, that were named after the color flag they flew on their standard. In 1615, the number of banners was increased to 16, and the heads of each of these banners were all relatives of Nurhachi, sons or nephews. In 1616, he declared himself Khan. So up to now the Manchus had not yet ever gotten to this level of organization under one single ruler. It was like Afghanistan. Every tribal leader was a king unto himself and his tribe. Now, one guy was in charge, and he had grand designs on China. So in 1616, you have the establishment of the later Jin dynasty in Manchuria, with Nirhachi as the first emperor. You surely recall the Jurchen Jin dynasty that ran from 1115 to 1234. They were the ones who had toppled the northern Song. So Nurhaci, being a Jurchen and all, as a nod to past Jurchen glory, named his dynasty the Jin as well. And we, of course, know it as the Later Jin. Down in Beijing, not too far south of the former Jurchen and now Manchu armies, The situation was worrisome, to say the least, and the only thing holding back the Manchus were these warlords who, though they claimed loyalty to the Ming and had fought bravely over the years for the emperor, in the end, they were only loyal to themselves first. And if Nurhachi cut them a better deal than the Ming emperor, their loyalties could be bought. Plus, it was a very bad sign that the Manchus were all organized like they were and had already taken on the name of a dynasty that had helped topple the Song back in 1127. Things had been looking good for Nurhaci, but he died suddenly in 1627 during the reign of the Tianqi Emperor, perishing by the very cannon that the Ming had acquired from the Portuguese in better days. So this first emperor of the later Qing dynasty died suddenly. This was at the Battle of Ningyuan that had spared the dynasty an invasion by the forces of Nerhachi. The victorious Ming general was Yuan Chonghuan, the one who I mentioned later on became a victim to the tragic Chongzhen emperor. So the death of Nurhaci bought a modicum of time for the Ming. Nurhaci, by the way, was credited with creating the Manchu script or writing system. What was starting to happen now was that the rats were, one by one, starting to abandon the sinking ship. These warlords out in the provinces who served the Ming emperor, always trying to keep the Manchus at bay, they began to defect to the Manchus, accepting their customs, and in return for their loyalty, they were treated well and prospered under the new regime. These turncoat Chinese generals, or warlords, they sort of combined together to form a special force that the Manchus used against the Ming forces. They were quite effective, and together, these collective forces moved ever closer to Beijing. In 1636, the name of the dynasty was changed from the later Jin to the Qing. The Manchus became stronger and more organized, and they attracted many Chinese defectors who were willing to sell out the country for a new chance with a new boss. Nurhachi was survived by one of his sons, Hong or Huang Taiji, who was officially considered the first Qing emperor. But he died in 1643, and it was Dorgon, the 14th son of Nurhachi, who took over leadership. But not as emperor. He's the one credited with laying the foundation in China for the Manchus. Dorgon and Kublai Khan were similar in a way that they were both non-Han Builders of dynasties, and both of them fully and enthusiastically embraced Chinese culture and political organization. And both of them were strongly opposed by their own people because of the betrayal of embracing a foreign culture over their own. So Li Zicheng, who was controlling the Forbidden City and who had already completely alienated himself from the populace for the raping and pillaging carried out by his troops. Dorgon heard about this riot happening in the capital, and that now was the perfect time to ride south into the Ming capital. There was only one main obstacle to making this easy. The only quick way into China was to go through the Great Wall, right where it starts, at Shanghai Guan. The Great Wall starts at Shanghai Guan in Hebei, and ends at Jiayu Guan in Gansu Province the Shanghai Guan Pass, or actually the Shanghai Pass, Guan means pass, was guarded by a general named Wu San Gui. Hearing how desperate the situation was in Beijing, Wu San Gui abandoned Shanghai Guan and led his forces that grew in number the closer they got to Beijing. And as soon as his post in Shanghai Guan was abandoned, the Manchu forces took it. He hadn't quite made it to Beijing when Wu San Gui learned the emperor had committed suicide, and Li Zicheng was the emperor of this new dynasty called the Shun. So he's thinking, wait a second, the Manchus are amassing to the north, and are going to be unstoppable. And you got this buffoon who was presently sitting on the dragon throne, and Wu San Gui is wondering, how is he going to fear under a rat like Li Zicheng? So both Li Zicheng and Dorgon were both negotiating with Wu San Gui and the sizable forces he led to join their respective side. And in one of the seminal acts in modern Chinese imperial history, Wu San Gui risked going down in history as a treasonous villain and chose to throw his lot in with the Manchus. May 27th, 1644, Li Zicheng, after his terms of alliance were rebuffed, sent his army to engage the Wu San Gui in battle. They were in the thick of it when Dorgon's forces poured past the Great Wall and joined up with the forces of Wu San Gui, And together, these joint forces defeated Li Zicheng and his ill-fated Xun dynasty. So June 1, 1644, Dorgon entered Beijing, and now the Manchus controlled the Forbidden City. The Chongzhen emperor, who had committed suicide, was given a respectful and solemn burial amongst his ancestors in the Ming tombs. The Ming bureaucracy was encouraged to stay and keep on doing whatever it was they did before. And those Manchus who had done any harm against the local Beijing residents were publicly punished. So the people saw this and, well, They compared it to the carnage that followed Li Zicheng's entry into the city, and they decided that they liked these Manchu guys better. Now, Dorgon never became emperor. He was a caretaker and regent for the Xuanzhi Emperor, who was just a child when he ascended the throne in 1643. So after Beijing was taken, the young Xuanzhi Emperor was sent for. He was still up in Manchuria, and he became the first Manchu Qing Emperor to sit on the Emperor's throne in Beijing. Now in 1646, Dorgon, in his capacity as the regent, came out with the order that all Han Chinese men had to shave their head in the style of the Manchus and wear their remaining hair in a queue, which was nothing more than a sign of subservience the Han Chinese had to endure as long as the Manchus were on the throne. Of course, when China was rife with revolution in the early 1900s, men were cutting off their cues as a sign of defiance against the Manchu emperor. Okay, I think we're going to stop here and pick up next time with the Qing in 1644. As you've noticed, this whole series isn't as detailed and rich in information as Chris Stewart's History of China podcast, if you really want to drill down further. I suggest you go check that one out. He's got something like 20-something episodes just on the Ming Dynasty. So for now, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a perfectly gorgeous Los Angeles, California day. Join me next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.